0: Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella, breathing a sigh of relief right now. I don't know about you guys, but I am feeling really, really good. I have not uh, been shy about my political opinions on this show, and I am deeply affected by what happened yesterday at Joe Biden's inauguration. And the aftermath of it, too, signing executive orders and just getting us back on track already on day one. This COVID crisis is far from over. We are over 400,000 deaths now in this country. I remember when this show started, I feel like we were in the 40,000 maybe back in May, 50,000. It was definitely under 100. We're at 400,000 people dead now. On Twitter, Melody Joy Kramer had tweeted to put that number in perspective, that the population of New Orleans is 390,000, the population of Tulsa is 401,000, and the population of Minneapolis is 430,000. So when we talk about how many people have died from this crisis, we're talking about medium-sized cities, big cities in this country, completely gone. I mean, that's just, it's so crazy. And it just feels so nice to know that this is not going to run out of control much longer. That there will be some policies put in place and some support for people put in place to help fight this virus, to get vaccines out there, to get personal protective equipment, to hopefully slow the spread of this and start getting us back to normal. And there's all sorts of other good news, of course, ending the Muslim ban ending the border wall, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord. Lots and lots of good news. I'm feeling all sorts of great things right now. And I'm happy that I shared it with my daughter. You know, she's seven. I mentioned before, I I homeschool her this year because of the pandemic. We've been teaching her here. And I made the inauguration part of our curriculum yesterday. And it was awesome. She watched Joe Biden's speech. We watched the amazing poem by Amanda Gorman. It was just a moving day. All around. And I'm happy that she has a role model in Kamala Harris to look up to. And uh yeah, I just feel like things are in control again. And it puts me at ease and it makes me very, very happy. Sonia Manzano is my guest today. You probably best know her as Maria from Sesame Street. She played Maria for more than 40 years on that show. And so, of course, we talk a lot about Sesame Street today. I grew up watching Maria, as I'm sure did so many other people. Anyone that I've told that I'm interviewing her, it's this deep gut reaction of just, ah, oh, I love Maria. And I felt that way talking to her. It was a great conversation. Of course, we talked a lot about Sesame Street. And she not only was a performer on the show, but also a writer on the show for many years. And so I was really curious just about, you know, the writing process and, and how do you make children's programming. How do you gear programming to kids? It's really interesting to me. So we had that conversation. She also has a brand new book out called A World Together. It's done in conjunction with National Geographic, and there are great photos to accompany the story. Sonia wrote the story, and National Geographic helped pick out the photos. But it's all about how even though we have our differences in this world, we have so much in common. We're all warmed by the same sun. We all like to eat food. Just all these wonderful things about our shared humanity. So that book is incredible. I wanted to talk to her all about the process of making that. And Sonia retired from Sesame Street about five years ago, but she is still in the children's programming game. She is producing a new show with Fred Rogers Productions that is scheduled to air on PBS this fall called Alma's Way. So we talked about that as well. So it's a really fun conversation. It's just exactly what I needed right now you'll hear we talked just before Martin Luther King Day we talked last week Um, but it brightened my day just thinking about sort of where we are and the new day that's ahead of us and knowing that Sonia and her Sesame Street friends have been helping us chart that course to a better planet a better world for you know five decades now it's unbelievable but yeah it's a great conversation go check out her new book A World Together And uh, here it is, my conversation with Sonia Manzano. Well, let's start off by just, you know, talking about the last 10 or so months, I guess, this whole quarantine pandemic period. What's it been like for you?
1: Oh, I guess it's just been as awful as it's been for everyone else. I keep thinking that it's going to be over soon and we'll go back to normal, though they tell us that that's not the expectation. You know, you you start putting off like going to the dentist and details like that cuz you figure oh it'll I'll wait till it's over
2: right
1: but I, I think i'm finally coming around to the fact that uh you know this is kind of going to be the new normal if you have to wear masks even after you have the vaccination and you should still be careful it's a new way of living i think that we're all going to have to get used to
2: yeah it
0: feels like the the finish line has just kind of progressively moved and maybe it's better that way i mean like if if in march of last year we were told it might be you know call it august of 2020 i'm making it up right now but like yeah. if we knew that i don't know that mentally we could have done that as much as just give it another two or 3 months you know
1: exactly exactly it's one step at a time and i've gotten so i have Uh, acquired so many other skills
2: oh yeah
1: well i mean i'm a a a luddite when it comes to technology and computers and on zooming and you know doing uh interviews and having conferences on zoom platforms and it's just a totally different way of communicating
0: do you think you'd want to go back to you know being on the road so much or making appearances and things you know after this is all done or is zoom kind of tempting now
1: Zoom is very tempting that you can stay home and not deal with the hassles of travel, which sure. were
0: hassle even before
1: COVID. Yeah, right. With all the security that we have to go through uh, and dealing with airlines when you miss a flight, whatever. But I do miss seeing people. I I mm. have to admit that. Sure. There's so many other. You go to a Head Start conference, let's say, and. And you give your comments and, and you answer their questions maybe on the Internet. But if you're there, you can sort of, you know, you eat with people and you get a sense of what their issues are, or you know, uh, in a much more profound way.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, spending a day or two with people is very different than, you know, <laughs> that hour or two that you're presenting, I guess, too. Right.
1: Exactly. And when I travel, it's a couple of days, you know, And sure. if it's one night of having uh, coffee with students at a university is and then uh, giving a talk the next day is really ideal because then you get to know what they want to know about right. before you get up on stage.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, I want to talk about this new book, A World Together, because it just feels like kind of the perfect book for this moment, you know, like it's just, it's, yeah, it's just so sweet and just so, I, I don't know. It's it's a good reminder of all of our humanity. And I, I wonder what made you want to tell that story right now?
1: Well, every opportunity to talk about diversity, I jump at and yeah. a National Geographic approached me and said, would I consider writing a book about diversity? And of course I said, yes. And they had a history with doing a couple of other books with Sesame Street about diversity and the challenge is of course finding a, a new angle for it for a topic that you know we see in a lot of children's books and I hit upon the idea of of a, the shared humanity and and uh, you know we all are warmed by the same sun that is an uh, I think Langston Hughes piece of poetry, I'm paraphrasing probably, so yeah. don't get me to it, but <laughs> I always thought this was a wonderful kind of idea that we all are warmed by the same sun and, and sort of emphasize our, our communal humanity because certainly the, the atmosphere in our country is not what ideally what we thought we were. So yeah. I thought it was a simple way of reaching out to kids.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I I wonder about that too, just, you know, that, that idea that this message almost feels more needed now than ever, at least to me, like just, you know, as you say, things are are so divisive and, you know, rhetoric is so heated and there, there's so much, there's so many people trying to to exploit our differences rather than bring us together and sort of see what we have in common. And it, you know, it, it feels almost bold to stand up and say no we're we're all the same guys like that that little bit that we disagree on like we (laughs) can get over that like why does that feel such a like such a i do do you agree like it feels like a bold statement to make right now in a weird Uh, way well
1: i i suppose it does it's hard for me to see it as a bold statement when sesame street had made it in 1969. sure
0: (laughs) Well, that and, you know, I grew up with that and that's, you know, messaging of my childhood. But I, it just as I look around the world right now, I feel like in the last, you know, certainly in the last four years, but in the last, you know, 20 or so, we've all kind of gone to our own camps and, you know, th- there's a fear about just talking to each other and, and meeting, as you say, just sitting down and having coffee and figuring out what's important to each other.
1: Right, right, right. But but uh, it, it, it proves this, that you think that you've solved the problem in one generation and it's not true. You have to keep resolving it. Each coming generation has to often solve the same problems. I was struck by seeing some Ken Burns documentary on the national parks. And yep. oh, there's Muir, um, the great conservationist, or, you know, talking to Teddy Roosevelt about conserving the park. President Teddy Roosevelt, and it was a stunning concept, you know. Yeah.
0: And then everybody conserved for a while, and then everybody
1: forgot about it. in right. The
2: next generation. Yeah. You
0: know? Well, that was, you know, we're like Martin Luther King Day is coming up, and I'm I'm I have a second grade daughter, she's seven, and uh, we're homeschooling her this year just because of the pandemic. So I'm I'm her teacher, which is a new role for me. But I thought it was important to sort of tell her the the story of Martin Luther King today, and we start talking about it and. You know, I'm I'm getting very hopeful just remembering, you know, the eye of a dream speech and, you know, teaching her sort of how he was able to to make us see that we're all kind of similar and, and break down these barriers. And then I had to tie it into like and remember, you know, all summer we've been seeing these signs, Black Lives Matter. And, you know, there was progress for a while, but now we're having those conversations again. And like it just. It wasn't the ending I hoped. To just say this one man came in and you know said some great things and got us to all see our differences. You know there were there was real action, of course, that came out of him. But it's sure. like, here we are again. You know.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, it's. I think it's just more insidious. I think racism than I thought could. could you know, than maybe many thought it existed in our society. Yeah. I sure. always read letters from Birmingham Jail. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and, around Martin Luther King because. I thought those letters were the most revealing. And I think it's in those letters that he says how difficult it is to tell your seven-year-old child. Now, this was in the 60s when they were watching an ad for, let's all visit the fun part. Yeah. The merry-go-round. How difficult it is for generation upon generation of African-American parents to have to tell their child who says when can we go right we can't go to this park because african americans aren't allowed to go to this amusement park and and it's a little I've, i'm pretty sure it's in uh those letters that dr king could give a very personal exchange that reveals how problematic the situation was, and if telling your kid you can't take her to the amusement park doesn't get any more personal than that. <laughs> sure,
0: yeah, I, I mean that was again just you know sort of telling this story to my daughter today. Like in my head, I said, okay, you know, we'll talk about segregation, and this is the first she's kind of learned about it. And you know, it's it's bathrooms and and water fountains. And then as I'm going, I'm like, well, and then in theaters, you know, they had to sit separately, and then on buses they had to sit separately, and then hotels couldn't. And I'm just like, oh man, like. I haven't enumerated it to myself in that way in a long time, and you just realize, like, oh, you know, right, thank goodness right. we're beyond some of that. But yeah, as you say, it's there's still a yeah. long way to go.
1: Uh, uh, I was, yeah, i sorry. No, I just was
0: reading something
1: about it, an early uh, African American uh, uh, comics illustrator uh-huh. who, like in the 20s, wanted to get his uh, comics off the ground, but um, his first comic was very successful. But then he couldn't get the white uh paper factory owners to sell him paper wow it's wild that you
0: you uh uh sort of
1: you know get a sense of things when you know the personal stories, but I'm sorry I interrupted you no
0: no no not at all that was that was great. <laughs> I was happy for that <laughs> um, getting back to the book for a minute you know I, I want to ask you too because it's a children's book. Um, You know, there's a there's a complex message to it. And, you know, it, it is a deep book, but it's also kind of on the surface, a very simple book. And I wonder, like, when you're writing in that style, does it come easier because there's an economy of words or is it a struggle because you have to have it so simple but so succinct?
1: Well, I love to. That's the Sesame Street message that you take a complex issues and simplify them so that You know, a preschooler or or a very young person can understand. And I really enjoyed the process of getting the words down as pithy as possible to just really say exactly what I, what I mean without using any big words and, and using of, you know, very, very short sentences. The other thing that was different is that this is the first time I worked with photographs. Yeah. Usually it's illustrating. I mean, I'm not the illustrator, but I'll write the story and somebody will illustrate it or I write the prose. But this was kind of both things happening at the same time, you know, the collection of the photographs and the words that that put them together. And and photographs like tell their own story. Each one tells like its own story. So there's a million. Stories in here. I'm looking at this one page where the kids are happy and sad, and there's that little girl with the cowboy hat on who yep. looks so angry, <laughs> and the little girl in the lower right hand corner who looks so defensive as she's holding on to her stuffed animal. So, you know, I'm hoping that the pictures, the the photographs, inspire conversations. Uh, between the parent and the child
0: yeah they definitely did i mean i have a a four-year-old as well so my seven and four-year-old we sat down and read it last night together and yeah even just like on that page trying to decode the emotions you know the the prose that that accompanies it is you know uh, people feel happy or sad excited or worried glad or mad and you look at these different faces and you know it was interesting just to hear the kids sort of talk about what they thought each kid was going through in the photo you know it, it was a great opportunity to go beyond just you know it's not a book where you're just turning the page and, and reading yeah. it. You know, It's it was a discussion point, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. What was it, what was it like choosing the photographs? How much work was that? Just trying to f- find, you know, exactly the right fit for what you wanted to say.
1: I had nothing to do with that. There's a wonderful editor uh, at National Geographic who, as you can imagine, they have uh, wonderful editors there. Sure. You know, f- photographs, uh, people who just edit photographs. I sent her a bunch of pictures of me on Sesame Street, and I said, I don't know how you could possibly go through all these pictures. <laughs> and that is a real talent. Uh, I wanted uh, some urban pictures because I am an urban person. Yep. I was born and raised in the Bronx. And some certainly I think my association with Sesame Street You would associate me with an urban environment, I think, and not with a. So I wanted to have some urban pictures there, which they accommodated. And since I dedicated the book to children in Puerto Rico, I wanted a picture of Puerto Rico, which they managed to find in them also and accommodate me.
0: Yeah. I love, too, that at the end, you know, that that was one of the things was sort of going through and, and trying to guess maybe like this looks like it might be Mongolia. But, you know, I'm not sure. And I wasn't sure if, if that would pay off or not, you know. And and then and the in the end you have a map of where each picture was taken and, you know, a caption for each photo to kind of tell where it was from. And, you know, that seemed like a creative choice as well. What what was your thinking there?
1: Yes, well they, they I think that's a tenant of uh, National Geographic. Uh-huh. I think all their books have a little glossary in the back, like the geography, so you can tell where where all of the pictures are from. Gotcha. I was very thrilled to have pictures of my own family Yep. back there where I'm with Rosita. And uh as I said in my uh, afterward there, you know, they fascinated me as a kid because they were so different from where I lived in New York City. Yeah, I, I would just pour over them and look and wonder where those little, like with my mother, where, where that little kid in the background was today or, mm. you know what, why is me in school? And, you know, how come my mother's so dressed up in such a kind of mean environment? Yeah. You know, those, uh, those questions were.
0: I love what you wrote to accompany it, too, that, you know, you, you would study those photos as a kid before you'd ever been to Puerto Rico. And then when you traveled there, you said, I understood my mother even more in both profound and superficial ways. I yeah. If we talk about that some.
2: <laughs> oh,
1: sure. I guess As you mentioned, I was born in the States and only knew about Puerto Rico from what my parents said about it Friday afternoons after work is when they would sit around and talk about Puerto Rico. And and it was a little bit more confusing because they would say the most terrible things about escaping the most awful poverty, things that, as an American or as someone in the mainland was foreign to me. Kids that are hungry. You know, I didn't see that. But they used to talk about escaping that kind of environment. And I think, oh, what a terrible place, Puerto Rico. And then they'd sing beautiful songs about the island, (laughs) about the environment and the love stories and all this. And I think, oh, what a wonderful place it is. Which is it? Is it a wonderful place or a terrible place? So uh, I had those concerns conflicting feelings about Puerto Rico, you know, and it wasn't until you get older that you realize it could be both, yeah. you know, a wonderful place and, and a place that people escape from.
0: Well, that's what I'm, as you're saying that, like in your head now, in your mind, do you romanticize either Puerto Rico itself or your parents experience there? Or, you know, I guess, how does it, how does that memory exist in your mind you now?
1: Do, I do, I it, it I do romanticize it. It, it, it is a, uh, romantic notion I have of Puerto Rico and I always will and I think it's because a lot of us New Yorkans or mainlanders have a Puerto Rico of our dreams mm-hmm. and uh, so let's say uh, on Christmas you have wonderful roast pork and wonderful coquito which is a Christmas drink so in my mind that meant that you had it in Puerto Rico every day Mm, right. <laughs> you know, if we have these little snippets of, you know, beautiful guitar music by Trio Los Panchos or a great salsa person, that must mean that in Puerto Rico, you couldn't, you'd hear it 24-7, you yeah, know, right? and, you know, then when I got there, you know, and, you know, my family had jobs, you know, they could <laughs> It wasn't this uh uh all the the high points of puerto rican culture twenty four seven they were <laughs> actually doing work and you know <laughs> having to go to the supermarket
0: right. That's so fun. I'm I'm just thinking, like even as a kid, when you learn about another country or something, like you learn about the cultural aspects, but you never really think about the day to day. You know. Day,
1: yes, yeah. exactly. You learn about you know the culture of you know going to Italy and and uh, you know you watch the Godfather and you want to go the movies, the Godfather. Right. You you know you want to go to Sicily and expect that wonderful uh, environment. And that's romanticizing it. Yeah. And he did such a good job of it. That wonderful director that we all want to go to Italy after seeing the Godfather movies. Right.
0: <laughs> and as you say, when you go there, it's not just, it's not just wine mm-hmm. and pasta. It's, you know, if you live yep. there, people have jobs and, you know, and right. And all there. the normal things. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about Sesame Street for a minute, because obviously that's a, a huge chunk of your life. Um, I'm sure you've told this story a million times. But would you mind uh, just, r- r- you know, telling me how uh, how you first got involved with them?
1: Oh, my goodness. I uh, have told this story, but a million times. And, and, you know, I want to start out by saying that I was affected by Sesame Street before I was on it. I remember quite clearly walking into the student union of Carnegie Mellon University, where I was attending, and seeing... Sesame Street. Uh And being so stunned by it, it was, I think it was, believe it or not, it was Burt Lancaster reciting the alphabet. (laughs) Okay. old, you know, actor of the 50s and 60s. Wonderful actor reciting the alphabet. And then James Earl Jones starts reciting the alphabet. And I thought, is this a show about lip reading? It was just... (laughs) so compelling and they cut to an animation and it was Wanda the Witch and it was Gracie Slick from Jefferson Airplane singing. Wow. So it was like, whoa, what is this? And yeah. the, and uh, and then, of course, absolutely stunned when Susan and Gordon came on because uh, in 1969, believe it or not, you never saw people of color on television Right. trying to get this idea across. And I was raised in an environment where you never saw people of color on television, you did begin to feel invisible as a kid. I felt invisible. I didn't know what, what I was going to grow up to be. If you don't see it, you can't be it. So, and, and many, many, many actors and performers of, uh, you know, of my generation and, and younger have said, you know, not seeing themselves on television or in the media in any way did make you feel invisible. so, when I saw Susan and Gordon, I was like, whoa, gee whiz. This is really, this is really something. And the street, it was an urban invite. You didn't see cities unless it was a cop show. Yeah. It was like kids didn't live in cities.
0: Right. This was the Leave It to Beaver and, uh, well, that a little earlier than that, but, you know, Brady Bunch and all those kinds of shows. It was very suburban right. at that point. Yeah.
1: So that was stunning. And now this is 1969. And then uh, around that time, uh, I was also in a show, uh, entitled Godspell that was created at Carnegie Mellon University on that campus. Oh wow. And, uh, we came to New York to bring the show and, you know, we brought the show to New York and, uh, and then I just got an audition. It was, I think the most important things happen to you when you're not paying that much attention. I thought it was just one audition of, you know, I was starting my career. I was in an off-Broadway hit. I just went to this audition and uh, I didn't even have a call back. They just called me back and said, okay, come on in. (laughs) You're in. Just come do it. I I mean, I wish I could say that I, you know, there were millions of people auditioning. There were maybe five. (laughs) There weren't that many Latin actors out trying to get work. So I was lucky. And then, uh, you know, I was unsure, certainly for the first year. So what, what my place in it, working with puppets was, right. was very different and, and not being on a proscenium stage where the audience is in front of you here in the studio, the cameras are all around you. There's no separation. I mean, the director is like right in your ear. Right. <laughs> you know, right off camera. <laughs> and, and, and Big Bird, played by Carol Spinney, would say things like, Don't be nervous. There's only going to be millions of people watching you. (laughs) (laughs) Right before we went on, only Carol Spinney, who's such a sweet soul, could get away with that and not make me mad.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I met him briefly at the Emmys, uh, maybe 10 years ago. And just like, it's still just one of the most touching experiences I've ever had with another human was like, he had an Oscar puppet with him. Oscar was presenting this was at the daytime Emmys. Uh, and so you know, I, like that helped me sort of place him. But I, I knew who he was at that point it was just like, Oh, hey, what's and you know, he grew up in Massachusetts, not far from where I live. And we talked about that. And, I'd worked at this old house for a long time, so we, you know, had the PBS connection, and it was it was a five-minute interaction, but it's one of those that just, like, it stayed with me, you know, 10, 12 years later. It's it's wild.
1: Yeah. Big Bird is exactly as Carol is, and then uh, Oscar the Grouch is his dark side, <laughs> and he became to Anyway, when I started to realize the way to work with these puppeteers and these puppets was that... You couldn't compete with them as far as performance or humor went. Once I, you know, you can't compete with an entity that can be thrown across the room and (laughs) stuff from up with a line. I mean, they're bigger than you. And so when I realized that I was a straight man and they were the comics, I I clicked. I I had to set up the joke and let them come. I was the one that had to say, I don't know, Big Bird how many feathers do you think you have? Or something like that. Let him come in with the witty answer.
0: Right. Was there ever a moment like, you know, you talk about coming to New York with Godspell and, you know, imagining being a stage actor and then getting this role on this, you know, children's PBS show. Like, was there ever a moment where you were like, I really want to just get back on the stage? Like, what am I doing here? Like, did it take you a while to, to come into your own on that show and, and really own it? Or was it like, The moment you got there you're just like this is it i'm happy
1: it took me maybe two years before i was realized and was happy to say i want to stay here because the pressures of you know you're a young person and you start thinking well i'm supposed to want to be on a network show right i'm supposed to want to be in the movies well of course that's you know you want that The, the your agent would rather at 10% of something you're making on a network show than 10% of something <laughs> you're making on, on a, a PBS show. Sure. And you're a young person and you're thinking you follow along with the expectation. So it t- took me a while to to say to myself, you know, if I never did anything else, what a
0: wonderful one thing to do. Is it, uh, is it strange that people know you more as Maria than as Sonia?
1: Uh... No, I created sort of the part of Maria by making uh Maria exactly like me on purpose, okay well, <laughs> so I don't feel like I was playing a role as a matter of fact in the early years. I did keep asking the producers what you know what Maria was like should she she'd be like this, should she be like that, this, that, and the other because it's easier to play a character than just as it's easier for a puppeteer to have a puppet on his hand than right. to be on camera. It's easier to play a character than to be yourself. And they kept saying be yourself. And that was tough to, to just, I mean, you feel kind of uh, uncovered yeah. <laughs> You know, when you're yourself. And uh, but I decided to face that and I decided to play with the camera and look into the camera
2: hmm.
1: Not make-believe it wasn't there, but that it was there, and it was my connection to the kid at home. I found a lot of comfort on television when I was a kid. I was raised in a tumultuous environment. I found comfort on television. So I always thought there must be a kid out there that's also looking at television, looking for comfort. Yeah. I really felt that. And so I, uh, I think because I've tried to maintain that connection Maria and Sonia just blend. Right. <laughs> I don't even respond. You know, I don't even think it's odd when people call me Maria. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I imagine too. Though you talk about you know connecting with with children through the screen, and you know at, at this point now, you know anyone under the age of you know forty five or so has grown up with you. And you know, I mean, there's like just generations upon generations of, of kids that, that made that connection. And I, I wonder what that feels like for you, just as you say, you know, going to a college and, and meeting with them or whatever. Like you must hear these stories all the time of how you've affected people.
1: Yes, I heard such wonderful things. The fun, One of the funniest things was a woman. Do you remember a while ago when J-Lo was dating P. Diddy?
0: Oh, sure. Yeah.
1: And it was in the news all the time. And there was a character on Sesame Street named David, uh, played by the actor Northern Uh Calloway. And he was African-American. And we used to sort of be boyfriend and girlfriend. And this college professor at the Midwestern University said, well, you were the J-Lo and P. Diddy of my generation.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. (laughs)
0: um you also not just appeared on camera but you started writing for sesame street at a certain point uh talk to me about that shift i guess
1: oh yes as i said i i just loved the position there as an actor but an actor is does not have as much say as a writer obviously and we would have writers cast meetings the writers would ask us what kind of stuff we wanted to do and i would say oh i i want to do chaplin and And they would write it. So once they did take my ideas, I I, they validated them for me because they I would see them. They would I mean they would expand it and develop it, but you know tell that I was a source of inspiration. And then uh, coupled with that, I started to have some questions about the Latino content. And my mentor, friend, and producer Dulcie Singer. You know said, "Why don't you try writing some of this stuff? Mm. You're so smart, <laughs> <laughs> no, not really, but you know she she did, and she gave me the uh the curriculum book of the show. She said, just so you'll know what we're up against." And all of a sudden, I started seeing behind the scenes the curriculum that they had to get across, the research people that they have to deal with, the snap decisions that have to be made in the control room. Do you accept this item where the performance was wonderful, but you saw a little bit of the puppeteer's head? Or do you take the less wonderful performance because you don't see the puppeteer's head? I mean, and that was a real gift for me. To see the inner workings of something, the behind the scenes, and then I thought I could I could do this, and yeah. that's that when I started writing.
0: We talked earlier about the challenge of kind of not talking down to kids and and meeting these these tough topics head on. I wonder, you know, if you have any any times where that that stands out, you know, any sort of specific challenges of like we have to write a script around X.
1: Well, well, Sesame Street is known for that, but I think the first one that struck me was, of course, Goodbye, Mr. Hooper. I wasn't a writer at that time, but I was very proud to be part of the show. As as you know, Will Lee is the actor who played Mr. Hooper, who died, and uh, we had to explain his absence, what to do, replace him with another actor, say he went uh, to Florida, whatever. But the, once again, Dulcie Singer, this producer, said, we tell kids the truth about life.
2: Yeah,
1: Death is part of life. It's not a man-made occurrence. Right. It just happens the same as birth does. And so she said, let's tell them the truth. And they, research went out to see everything that was out there for, on death for kids and what their expectation was. Kids what yeah. they felt about it, and they, all of that research was put into a beautiful script by Norman Stiles, and the last moment in this show, a baby is born, and Big Bird says, wow, Mr. Hoover was always here, and now he's not, but that baby was never here, and now the baby is, mm. you know, and I wish that that's all that Sesame Street has done, but they've taken on other things, incarceration, financial crisis. Yeah. Uh Syrian refugees. They've had some programming to help children realize that fish swim in the ocean and birds fly in the sky. They don't even know that because they're living at these refugee camps.
2: Yeah.
1: And then Sesame Street also did 9/11 uh, a video for 9/11 to assuage some fears about that. So. I wish they would run out of topics to tell you the truth. (laughs) The sad
0: news and stuff. Wouldn't that
1: be wonderful? Oh, we don't have any topics. (laughs) Only back to letters and numbers and colors. The easy
0: stuff, right. I want to ask you, too, just about sort of the evolution of the show, because uh, as you mentioned, like, you know, seeing it in that student union and certainly my memory growing up with it in the 80s, the live action and, and Muppet sort of street sequences were a piece of the show. But I remember just a lot of, you know, almost avant-garde, like animation and stop motion and, you know, really kind of interesting things happening as sort of interstitial segments. And then certainly there were like the standalone Muppet pieces. And as I watch it now with my kids, any of the standalones that are sort of separate from the plot on the street, they're still kind of involving Muppets, it seems. And I wonder, like sort of leaning into to Muppet-heavy storylines, uh, th- that feels like a choice that was made at a certain point
1: yeah that was a choice that was made at a certain point. you know, I felt that the show was like leaning more towards Muppets and less on less on the human stories. yeah I mean, I had a baby on the show I had I got married on the show. I was like it was like the first reality show without the whining <laughs> went in the eighties
2: yeah
1: right <laughs> uh, you know it was a soap opera. I fell in love it was a you know, uh, uh, Gordon, played by Roscoe Orman, had, had an adopted child, which was his own child. Uh, Buffy St. Marie had a baby. Um, the show, this, the, the um, folk singer had a baby. I don't nursed the show. So, but they really went away from that, and that was a choice. And when I started feeling that my participation was going to be lessened, that's when I started writing. Mm books because I, I still had our uh, creative energy and I needed a place to put it.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about that, too, because in 2016, you received a Lifetime Achievement Emmy. And like that's I feel like that can be a weird thing because in some ways it's a great honor. But, you know, I, I know, again, I was at this old house for a long time and our creator got a Lifetime Achievement Award maybe four or five years ago. And it's this weird, like, this is your life. Kind of, you know, there's a montage of all your work and you get to make a big speech and everyone's standing and cheering. Like, but it, it has almost like a wake vibe to it. You know, it, it feels like you're, you're awake. And obviously you've done so much since then as well. And like, just I, I wonder, like, sort of the emotions around getting a, a Lifetime Achievement Emmy.
1: Oh, I don't know. I think it was better than getting a poke in the eye, don't
0: you? <laughs> <laughs> That's the optimistic take. I, I like that.
1: Yeah, regardless of you know, is my life over? You
0: know? <laughs> I like that. Uh, well, you know, talking about new projects as well. I know it, there was a press release out uh, fairly recently. You've got this new project that you're doing with Fred Rogers Productions, Alma's Way. Um, how yeah. much? How much can you talk about that? That is coming this oh, fall, I well, guess, right?
1: It, it's- uh, very excited. Uh, we're in the middle of production, and it's about uh, thinking. My idea was to uh, remind kids that they have a brain and they could think of things on their own. It's not just uh, memorizing information that adults might tell you, yeah. but that you can put two and two together yourself. And that's kind of the main idea of the show. Uh, so Alma has a thinks a lot during the show and it take it takes place in the bronx because you know it's kind of based loosely on my bronx experiences
0: yeah i love that uh this will be an animated show right
1: animated show yeah
0: yeah is so that the, new for you have you done animated things before no no so i'm like really learning about animation by
1: the way uh you said that the sesame street used to have a lot of avant-garde animation it was one of the, the, the early pixar
2: animation oh, that's right
1: yeah yeah it's a the architect's lamp walking around and looking at the camera and, <laughs> and stuff. So no, so this is a whole, it's a, it's a different form, obviously, than yep. live action in that, you know, your dusts have to be in place way before they have to be in place on a live action when you tape it. You could change a line here and there. You can't do that, obviously, in an animation. Yep. Uh, so, you know, that's very exciting. But, you know, storytelling is storytelling a good story has a beginning a middle and an end and a climax and that certainly doesn't vary from live action to to animation
0: yeah i want to ask you about setting it in the bronx as well because obviously you know sesame street as you said is a very urban very new york environment and alma's way will be as well like in in some ways i feel like that can be very specific and is you know is speaking to a very small audience But at the same time, like we know from Sesame that people all across the country, people all across the world, really, I mean, the show resonates. And, you know, I I guess I just wonder, like, that that choice to set Alma's way in the Bronx and, you know, to to tell these urban stories. Like, why does that resonate in Nebraska, for example?
1: I know. And that's what I'm banking on. But I think my proof is that Sesame Street is so urban. Yep. And you think, why do they love it in Nebraska? I mean, I have been to Nebraska, and I've asked kids, where is Sesame Street? And they'll say, oh, it's right around the corner, right over there. I mean, they take complete ownership of it. Why is it liked in China, in Japan? It's a very American show, Sesame Street. And I think it's because it's specific, It's specific to a certain place, and that makes it ring true. It's like a specific emotion. It's like when you're in a Broadway theater and you're way in the back and an actor does a specific thing with a specific emotion, you feel it, it goes through all the rows. Yeah, right. Because it's a specific, sincere feeling. So I think the fact that it's a place in the Bronx... Well, there's a lot of underserved children in the Bronx, sure. and that was a reason for me to set it there. Plus, it's my roots. It's, you know, how can it not be Puerto Rican? Everything <laughs> that I do will. I, you know, I couldn't help it. It's going to be that way anyway. But I think so, as we're sincere, pe- you know, I think people will love it. I have to believe that because that's what happened to Sesame Street. Their target audience was... I mean, it was all kids, but their target audience was
0: underserved children in 1969.
1: And the whole world went for it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Everybody followed.
0: Yeah. Know. Well, it's, you know, like like I said, with my kids, you know, we took them a year and a half or so ago to the, the Sesame Place area at SeaWorld in Orlando. And like... I was as moved to be standing in front of the replica of the one, two, three, you know, tenement building as they were. And it's just like, wow, like this really just cuts across, you know, everybody. It's, it's incredible. Yeah.
1: Yeah, It was great to be a part of it. And I'm banking that uh, that nothing can happen like Sesame Street again, but those little, those, my little lessons is, you know, I think everybody liked me and the cast because we were, we, we strive to be sincere and, and people pick up on that, even though if it's not ex- exactly a feeling sincere, which is what a world together is about. We all feel sleepy in different ways, but it's all sleepy or happy, etc.
0: All right, there we go. Sonia Manzano. Man, what a career. How fun just to be involved with Sesame Street for that long and to see it from so many different angles. And now to take that expertise and bring it over to a new project inspiring. I loved it. Go check out her book as well. It's called A World Together. It's from National Geographic, and it's available where you buy books. It's a great book to read with kids. It has very simple writing, but it invites conversation. Your kids are going to have questions as you read it to them. You can bring up discussion points, and it's just a great way to appreciate both how similar we are and how different we are, and how that difference, that diversity. It's a strength. So go check it out. I have new shows every Monday and Thursday. I'll be back on Monday with a new show. It'll be a surprise. I'll tell you about it then. Don't forget you can sign up for my newsletter as well. It comes out every Sunday and it recaps some of the shows. If you missed them, go to and Enter your email address there. I will talk to you guys on Monday. Stay safe.